0: leading us in some time for people to share, and uh, thank you for the music, both of you, and with that, see if I can kick this thing on here, and Josh already opened with a word of prayer, so we're just going to do a really quick review, I'm not going to review the whole issue of glory, I could, but I'm starting in the middle of last week's set of slides, because we were in the middle of last week's outline when we ended, we couldn't finish this, and uh, last week, but... Glory. Just give me a simple definition of glory. If somebody said, what's glory? Weight. Yeah. It's God's weight. His significance, right? Um, his reputation. The opinion of who he, who he knows himself to be. I have an opinion about myself. and Josh, we, we heard his opinion of himself. He's still 18 and 19. <laughs> we know he's not 18 and 19 you know uh, he knows he's really not 18 and 19 but we can have these opinions of ourselves it can be inaccurate but God's opinion because he is all knowing his opinion is always accurate and so what we're doing right now uh, this is still part of our study on the church and the nature of the church and right now we've moved into a section where we're looking at Part of God's purpose for the church, for us as individuals, but collectively as as the church, is that we can be showing glory to God. We can, by the way we live, we can be saying something about God. We can be saying something about the significance of God. We can be saying something about God's reputation. And so we were looking at this, and this is sort of appropriate when, when we're talking about this, although it's a little bit different situation. If you have your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 1 Peter, and I want to... This is really crazy. We kind of got down towards the end of this and I did not finish what we were looking at last week here in 1 Peter. So I'm going to just have us put in in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 as we're talking about God's glory. And actually this is at the end of verse 12. We should say this. He says, Keep your or have your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that... In the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of that. We have that word in the New American Standard visitation. Some of your Bibles might have other words, but it's the day in which the the bishops or the pastors start doing their jobs again. This is going to come up another time here in this letter that he's concerned about these guys actually doing their jobs. But they're going to glorify God. There doesn't say everybody will, but some of them are going to watch the way you live in the midst of all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Maybe it might, it might be that people don't treat you well. Maybe it's the fact that your eyes don't work that well or your legs don't work as well as they used to and uh, any myriad of other things that we, that we have going on that we can still live to the glory of God in the midst of that. In fact, I was thinking about this when we were sharing and talking about our limitations here, uh, when Josh was sharing in that statement that Paul makes in first, or 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, where he says that my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, I'm going to boast in my weakness. We don't do that. What do we do? When we can't see as well, when we can't walk as well, when we can't think as well, whatever it might be, the limitations we're facing. We get really upset and we grumble and grouse, sometimes to God, sometimes just disgusted with ourselves. But Paul says, I'm going to actually rejoice in those limitations. And you know one of the limitations that Paul had that we do know of? His eyesight. I just read an article recently. I'd be interested in reading the guy's book because it's, it has to do with about Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. In that same passage in 2 Corinthians 9. And I'd be interested in knowing what his conclusions on this is. But what he did when I was reading his blog this last uh, two weeks ago, he goes through all these major commentators and trying to, and almost all the major commentators. What he was trying to point out is they're all like, "Well, we have no idea of what the thorn in the flesh is. We can't know. It's not possible. We can only guess." And on and on. And he just, you could tell when he's writing this, he's actually pretty frustrated with the fact that you've got these people that are supposed to be scholars. And this guy's a scholar. He's doctored. He teaches down at Biola or at Talbot, technically. Uh, and um, and he's stating in there that he says, how come nobody can figure this out? Now, I'm not going to go through and teach on that today, but if you go to Galatians chapter 4, you could, Paul says, when I came to you, you guys, number one, you didn't throw up when you saw me. Because remember, Paul had been stoned just before he got, so he must have looked horrible. And he said, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. What in the world does that mean if not that part of the stoning Paul's eyesight wasn't damaged or his eyes weren't damaged? And remember, we've told you this before. The last thing normally that they did when they stoned a person was they had someone take a, a stone at least the size of your head and stand here and <laughs> hold it like this and just drop it squarely on the head to make sure that this is crushed. And I've, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I've seen people that have had serious damage to their face and how some of this is smashed in. They're still functioning in life, but there's so much damage up here. And, every, you know, people look at them and you're like, oh, I don't want to stare because I don't want to be rude. Tim has a problem with staring, right, Peg? Yeah, but you see something like that. But there's people that have this, and so this happened to Paul. In fact, when Paul writes the end of Galatians, Paul said, you see what, with, with what large letters I have written to you. In other words, Galatians is probably the only letter, only letter that Paul hand wrote himself. Most of his letters he dictated to—we call him a secretary today—but when you go to seminary, you have to learn fancy words, "in amanuensis." <laughs> I listened to a guy once say, "The reason you go to seminary and learn big words is so that they can charge you—they can uh, justify charging you a lot for tuition." Anyway, uh, but the thing is, he dictated most of his letters. And some of the letters even have the person that took the dictation. Why? Well, maybe it was easier, but it might have been because Paul didn't see that well. All of his letters were written after he was stoned. So all of this to say, yeah, we face things like this, but how you face that? Paul doesn't look at it and say, I gripe and gripe. Well, he did. Three times he's saying, take this away from me, God. Take this away from me, God. Take this away. And the Lord Jesus Christ personally talks to him and he says, my grace is enough for you. My grace is enough for you. That's a hard thing for us to remember when we're facing challenges, physical challenges, whatever it might be. So if we do that, however, Peter says, as we live in these things and we have our behavior well, and it has to do with fleshly lusts and things like that, but fleshly lust doesn't just mean that that we are down the street there's a reason I don't put my water bottle in here but stick it back here. I just kicked it over in there, but thank goodness it's watertight, I hope. <laughs> what it's, it, that fleshly lust doesn't just mean that you're not carrying on with the neighbor lady down the street or something. It also can mean that you're not being driven by rage as an example of that. And sometimes the things that we face in life, we can be driven by rage. And we all know that there's plenty of things in the world to rage at, okay. Tim's taking way too long with his introduction here, so go to verse 13. Submit yourselves there, therefore, uh, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing doing right you might silence the ignorance of foolish men. So your freedom, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as act as slaves of God. Even... How many of you in here are a slave? Anybody here a slave to somebody else? Well, you should be to Christ, but he doesn't demand it, but it's something that Paul says is a logical thing. And Paul says you can look at yourselves as, as bond slaves to God in this. And By the way, God in this case, kind of just chiming in on what Jim is going, does not have a definite article here meaning and I would say this is in the entire Godhead that's involved in the fact that, of who you're a slave with regard to. And then he says, we looked at this last week, honor all men, love the brotherhood, and, and then fear God, honor the king. And I tried to point this out last week, I don't know if we made this point well enough, but the significance is still the object of your love is brothers and sisters in Christ. You treat others well, you treat them with honor, you treat them with respect, but the brothers in Christ, that's the object of your love. God has not called us to love your neighbor down the street. Has not called us to love the homeless man or your religious neighbors around you. He's called you to love brothers and sisters in Christ. That's his command that Christ left us with in John 13. But you still can treat everybody else with kindness and respect. I just think that that's very interesting that he's consistent. Peter is consistent with the object of our love. Servants be submission to and submissive. To your masters, and I'm gonna skip over this. I want to go down now to verse 21. He says, For you have been called for a purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you how to follow in his steps. I find this interesting. There's a man back in the early 20th century that wrote a book in his steps, and every once in a while it gets a revival, and Christians are like, Oh, in his steps, in his steps. He was a liberal that wanted people to try to live their social life like Christ. Be a healer, be a good man, do nice things. And it's not that you can't do those things. But he based it on this step, on this, uh, this verse. But the point of this verse and following his steps he's talking about is that he left you an example of how to suffer. Is that what Christians are taught? In fact, I've listened to some different people saying if if we really taught the New Testament like it should be taught, one of the things you'd have to teach people is, guess what? If you're a believer, you're going to suffer. Peter's going to tell us that. It's not an option. It's going to be part of your life at some point. And it's not just that you're going to suffer because your hip doesn't work right or you messed your knee up. It's going to be suffering at the hands of unsaved people that are not going to treat you well. They're going to be frustrated. They may even... Like the example Holland shared with regard to Clinton, they may even tease you because you don't do the things that they do. We're going to hopefully get to that verse here in just a little bit. So, this is the, this is the example of Christ. He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Well, that's an unusual character. They never met anybody like that before. And while being reviled, reviled, we don't use the word revile, let's say insult. Being insulted, severely insulted, he did not insult in return. You're ugly. Yeah, well, you're ugly. You're stupid. Well, you're stupider. Because that's, you know, a kid on the playground, right? But he said Christ didn't respond like that. And I find it really interesting to do that because sometimes as Christians we forget this. And sometimes when the world is dealing harshly with us, What do christians do there's a lot of christians right now that there is so much so much vitriol out there from christians towards the government and all of these things and that should not characterize our lives when the world looks at us doing like that they're like well you're just like us this is the way we respond to things we don't you know, when, when there's a Republican in the White House, well, we mock him and we mock the people that are in control there. And now you conservative Christians, now there's a Democrat in there. Well, you mock him and you do all this stuff. And we don't act any different. And I know we, always, we can always justify why we think we can do it, but they're just they think they're justified when they do it. And he says here, when being insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. In other words, this is kind of what Paul says in Romans 12. You know what? He says, when you go through suffering, when you deal with stuff, he says, you need to remember not to avenge yourself. Vengeance is God's job, not yours. And I can guarantee you, God will always handle it far better than you will ever got to finish the sentence there verse 24 and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross see he died as an innocent one but he's bearing our sins that he might that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed so keep keep in mind when he went to the cross it's not like yeah and jim was pointing this out this morning god's unique sort of love he didn't die for us because we were worthy he died for us because we were sinners we were god haters we were enemies that's the kind of people he died that christ died for and that was the example of god's love so he said he died bearing our sins that we might live and isn't that part of the gospel christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and you can be righteous with god and forgiven if you believe that it's that simple isn't it wonderful that's such a simple message for you were, verse 25, continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one that really ultimately was shepherd. Even if you're even if your personal shepherds, the shepherds over your flock, the pastors, we use the word pastor in English, but it's just the word it's just shepherd is what that word is. Even if those shepherds aren't doing their job. The shepherd, Jesus Christ, is always doing his job. You can always depend on him in this. And he says, so you have returned on him. And he says, he's the shepherd and the guardian or the overseer. There's that word for the day of oversight. The overseer of your souls. Why souls? Because when you're going through suffering, where do you feel it? Well, you feel it in your body, but your soul is, is where you react. The soul is where you handle that, where you're thinking about it. And you don't like the things that you see. You don't like the things you're experiencing. He says, but you can come to him and he's the one ultimately really that can care for it. Your shepherds, under shepherds, people in the body of Christ can do, that, do this. I appreciated Josh's comment at the end. That praise, and, and it's always when we have that praise time, it's like, oh, I don't have anything good to say. And we have prayer request time. And so we can say, well, pray for this. But do we ever in a, in a time when we have something to share say, I'm gonna share that I'm going through struggles and that this is hard. And God's trying to teach me something through this. But it's hard. Why don't we share that? I, I tell you this all the time. We show up at church and it's really easy for us to think, I'm the only one that struggles with stuff. I'm the only one that's having problems. I don't want anybody else to know that I struggle with these things. I want everybody to think I'm buttoned up nice and clean and everything's just the way it's supposed to be. But it's not. You're getting together with people that are dealing with some of the same problems you're dealing with. And as Peggy said, it's not that we get together just so that we can all say, well, i got this problem. Well, I've got this problem. i got this problem. We're sitting around in a circle at AA or something like that, talking about that. It's that we can now come together and encourage one another. I'm struggling with these things, but I know that God can help us work through this, and we can encourage one another. We need that. We need the encouragement of one another. Which just, as a pastoral encouragement to you, That means you need to be together with believers more than on Sunday morning. That means you need to be connecting with believers throughout your week. You need to be connecting them. We try to pack in, we give you three opportunities to listen to people teach on a Sunday. But part of that time you should be taking to connect with people. But it's still not sufficient. Remember, the early church met every single day. And if you put it in the context of what Peter's saying, and you got believers that are suffering at the hand of the world, wouldn't you want to be together with some people that would encourage you in the midst of that week? Rather than just going home and hiding out from the suffering that you're getting all day long, wherever you might be. And I really hope that before the rapture, before, if, if we're trusting that the rapture happens, well, we're still living, as Josh was saying. But I trust that we, that things won't turn and we won't suffer to the degree that these people were suffering. But it could happen. It could happen. And so it's good for us. This is one of the reasons you need to connect with believers throughout the week. Okay, This is one of the reasons that you need to be connecting with people. And it doesn't have to be that you're at every Bible city or something, but it means that, you know, you you find believers to go take some time to be with. Maybe it's just one other believer that you hang out with for a while. And you do more than just talk about the garden and fishing and things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that. So, with all of that now, whoops, something just... Oh, okay. I just saw. I want you to turn over to chapter four here. I'm going to move into this this next part of this First uh, Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. I want to. We're going to go down to verse twelve, but before we do that, I want you to look up in verse four at this. We were talking about this a little bit ago, and this I was. This came to mind when Holland was sharing about uh, Clinton's uh, conversation with her and what's happened. And notice what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4. And this is in the context right back in the verse before this that they, the time has passed for you to pursue a course of sensuality, drunkenness, carousing, par- drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Okay, Which we're not going to walk through those, but verse 4. And in all of this, they... Referring to the world, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. There's a big word that we don't use. That word dissipation is a word translating unsavingness. It doesn't mean you lose salvation, but it means it does nothing to contribute to your salvation. You don't grow by participating in this nonsense. And with those things then, they malign you. It's the word blasphemy. They slander you. So he says, they do. He says, this is what happened. But that first part of it, they, they're surprised. They think it's literally in the Greek. They think that it is strange. When you as a Christian just don't jump into everything else that the world is doing out there and just participate. And it's not that we have to be stuck up and go, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't do that kind of stuff. That's bad. You just don't participate. You don't participate in those things. And he says, they think it's strange. You're like, What? What? You, why don't you do this? What is with you? This is so much fun. I, I've told you that before. You know, when I was in college, I worked in a warehouse, and I there were uh, four other guys, three other guys up there in the warehouse. And uh, those guys, well, a lot of the other people in the warehouse generally too, they'd go out on Friday nights, and after work, they'd get off, and they'd say, "Hey, Tim, let's go downtown." Before you go home, go downtown with us. Let's go down to the bar. And those guys, I'd have to work with them on Saturday mornings. <laughs> and they'd come in there. And these guys would have, they'd be nursing hangovers. And they and I don't know how I've told you. Some of those guys, I Saturday morning after Saturday morning, that's the last time I remember doing that. Oh, that was so stupid. You know, and I'm thinking, after after a while, at first I'm thinking, well, good, you learned a lesson. Okay. Oh, next Saturday. Well, you didn't learn the lesson, but maybe you didn't. Pretty soon you're just like, no, you just keep saying that, but you're not learning anything. I look at it and think it's strange you keep repeating something. It's like walking up to a wall, banging your head against a brick wall, thinking it's going to feel better. It doesn't happen. But they, when we don't participate, when we don't run with them to the same excess, and he does use the word run, we're rushing, we're rushing into this disaster. And they think it's strange, you don't want to do this? The buildings on fire—it's going to be fun—and <laughs> we're like, no, no, it's okay. And they think that it's strange when you do this. That really came to mind uh, when uh, she, when Holland was sharing that. Anyway, let's go down to verse twelve in this. We could—I'm not here to teach all of First Peter, but verse twelve now. First Peter four twelve. Beloved, then do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing now when he's talking about this fiery ordeal in this context first of all it's fiery because it's intense it's hard to deal with number one but number two that word that's translated ordeal or in some of your bibles trial is a word a test you're being put to a test that wants to see you fail i want to give you a test and you're all going to fail in this regard and he says, that's what's happening. He says, beloved, you don't now consider it strange. This goes back to verse 4 that says, they think it's strange you don't participate with them. But you don't, you need to not think it's strange that you're going through something that's hard as part of this. And it comes upon you for your, it's happening upon you for your temptation, facing this purpose of temptation. Um, Verse 13, but to the degree or to the point that you share or fellowship in the sufferings of, and we can translate this Christ, and it could be referring to Jesus Christ, but I think it's more likely that this is referring to the Christ. Jesus Christ is ahead with all the believers together. And he says that you are sharing in the sufferings of the Christ. He says, continue to rejoice so that at the revelation or the unveiling of his glory, this goes right back to what he was talking about in chapter 1 with verse 8, or verse 7, he's going to be revealed. And then verse 8, we don't see him, but we're waiting to see him. He says that you may rejoice with, again, the same word, exultation. You know, E-X-U-L, not E-X-A-L, which I told you. That's a word we don't use in modern English. I would translate it excessive gladness or extreme gladness. Just think what it's going to be like when Christ appears for you and I and we get to see him as he is. There's not going to be a face among us that's going to be, oh, Christ came back. I was in the middle. I was in the middle of a game of solitaire and I think I was going to beat it on my phone this time. Or I was watching. Okay, step on your toes. I was watching the Seahawks and I think that they were going to win the Super Bowl this year. And then if a rapture happened, none of us are going to be that way. We're going to see Christ as he is, and we are going to be excessively glad, extremely glad. If you want a version of extremely glad, you just got to take my granddaughter downtown and watch the fireworks on Friday night. Every firework was, that was amazing red. That was spectacular. That was a Christmas tree firework. You know, she just, every one of them we're getting comments on. Everything's exciting. Now think about that and multiply that. Really? And, and we're gonna what? Multiply that. <laughs> well, I think when it says excessively glad, I think you and I do not grasp the intense gladness that you and I are gonna experience when we see Christ as he is. Will we be flapping our arms like Christ? Oh well probably won't be flapping our arms like my granddaughter, yeah. But but I think we will I think you just you and I do not appreciate how glad we will be in the midst of that but this is this is his point and this is uh, Paul makes his point John makes his point if you keep in mind that today is the day that the Lord Jesus Christ could could return today is the day that we could see him as he is today is the day that we could all be changed and forever forever be in his presence and always be with him wherever he is which is not going to be by any stretch boring cuz we think of this I was when I was growing up at kids, I don't know how many of your parents were like this, but one of the things you learned really, really quick on a Saturday or a summer day was you never told Mom, "I'm bored." You know what that meant? Mom's like, "Well, you need a job. I'm going to find you something to do." It it is one o'clock in the afternoon. The sun is beating down. That's a good time for you to go out and weed the peas or weed the beans. You know, find a job. What will we'll, we'll set you to clean in the house? Things like that. And all of those. It were just to remind us that we can claim that we get bored with stuff really easy down here, but you and I can always be fixing our attention in the future on the fact that we're going to be with Christ and it's never going to be boring because we're always going to be learning more and more about the character of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says here, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of the unveiling of his glory, when you really get to see his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Now the sufferings of the Christ, and Paul talks about this elsewhere, but Peter talks about it here, has to do with the fact, that suffering's going on within the whole body of Christ. And keep your finger here for just a minute and flip over to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to come back to Colossians here in a couple weeks. But in Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to go towards the end of the chapter. Colossians chapter 1, and look with me in verse 24. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings on behalf of you. And in my flesh, I do do my share to, on behalf of his body, that is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now here, this is again, this is the Christ's afflictions. And Jesus Christ himself didn't lack anything when he suffered, when he was beaten, when he was put on the cross. There was no lack in his sufferings. What he's talking about is the Christ, there is a lack in his sufferings. I think this is really important for you and I to get. This is a good place to demonstrate that the Christ cannot always refer to Jesus Christ himself because Jesus Christ was not didn't lack anything with regard to his sufferings. But in the Christ, do all believers suffer the same? Raise your hand if you've been beaten for the cause of Christ, physically beaten. Raise your hand if you've been thrown in jail for the cause of Christ. Taken away from your families? taken to a gulag in eastern Siberia and put away for 15 years and you get to see your spouse one day a year? I'm just saying that because there's believers that have suffered these things and a multitude of others for the cause of Christ. So, yeah, we don't suffer like that. And Paul's saying, you know, when I suffer, rather than sit there going, man, I suffer way more than anybody else in the body of Christ. Paul says, well... I can look at it positively. If I'm suffering, then my brother Dwight doesn't have to suffer as much, my brother Jim may not have to suffer. And Ronnie, and we can go on and so forth, you could say, I'm making up what's lacking elsewhere." Instead of grousing about it, Paul says, "I rejoice in the fact that I am making up for what is lacking in those tribulations or difficulties elsewhere. Do we ever do that? Do we ever learn that lesson from the Apostle Paul that you know what? You can actually you might suffer more. And maybe it makes up for what's lacking elsewhere. This is, by the way, one of the reasons that you as a believer, you can go flip back over there to 1 Peter 4, but this is one of the reasons why you as a believer, one of the reasons that you as a believer are called upon to remember the other believers in their sufferings. Because maybe they are suffering more than you. It's one of the reasons that your heart should be knit to your brothers and sisters in Christ wherever they are. So he says here, in verse 13 again, but to the degree or as far as you fellowship or share in the sufferings of Christ, the Christ, keep on rejoicing. Rejoice in that. Paul said he rejoiced. You can rejoice so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice here with this exceeding gladness, this excessive gladness. If you are reviled or insulted for the name of Christ, then you are... Blessed. Is this so this is kind of fallen off social media. But it was a handful of years ago. Man, everybody was like, so blessed, so blessed. And I keep using that one that I always thought was a it was some Christians, but they were standing at the at a at a car lot, standing in front of their really nice uh pickup truck that they bought, and they're standing, the couple are standing there and they go, New pickup truck, so blessed! <laughs> And I was like, come on, you guys are Christians. This is not the way we use the word blessed. Although maybe they meant really happy. But I think when they use that so blessed, it kind of minimizes the significance of that term. In this context, it is the word for happiness. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you can be happy ones. We go, really? People insult me? That can make me happy? Usually somebody insults me, my feelings are hurt. My feelings are hurt because somebody said a bad name about me. Maybe they said 10 bad names about me, but my feelings are hurt. And Paul says, Peter says, pardon me, Peter says, no. You meet happy ones rather than the ones that are pouting because somebody said something bad about you and hurt your feelings. And then he says here, because the glory, here we come, the glory, Well, I see what I'm doing. The glory, uh, no, here I, gotta, I keep searching between my Greek and the English, and it's messing me up. I'm sorry, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, when he talks about here, or refers to him as the spirit of glory, he's the spirit that is actually enacting God's purpose, God's reputation. He's here to work through us to actually have this kind of reputation out there in the world. When you go through the fruit of the spirit, what are the first three parts? What's that second one? Joy. Joy. This is the word he just said. You could rejoice. You could be rejoicing in this. Paul said he rejoiced. And if you go through suffering and you actually can rejoice in your suffering, not suffering because you did something foolish, which he's going to talk about that in a second, but rejoicing for doing the right thing, he says, that's the spirit of glory. Secondly, he's the spirit that is, and we have a the in front of God, So there's two possibilities on this. It could be describing the Spirit as God in this context, or it could be describing that the Spirit is the one sent from God. That's the more likely, in my opinion, that's the way I think this should be. He's the Spirit sent by God, because Christ was gonna go back and ask the Father to send the Spirit, and the Father did send the Spirit. He did send him with the Son, but that's not always indicated. And it says, he rests upon you. Now the word for rest that he uses here is a refreshing kind of rest. It's a refreshing kind of rest. I was uh, yesterday I was with Daryl, um, and Daryl was telling me about three people he knew when he was growing up that they worked on a farm, and every day at noon, no matter what was in the what they were in the middle of, they always stopped their farm work. They they came into the house, sat down and ate lunch, then they all sat down in their chairs and dropped off and took a nap for 15 minutes every day, like clockwork. He said those, he didn't know anybody that could just fall down and just Fall asleep like that. Just they were out 15 minutes and wake up. My my um, aunts and uncles. I think my mom would tell you this too. That my grandfather was like that. Always come in for lunch every day, and then they all would go into the living room. Well, but the kids would go in there and turn on cartoons, and they're watching cartoons, and their dad would lay down. My grandpa would lay down on the sofa, and he would 15, 20 minutes, and the kids are every day thinking, oh, he's going to sleep late. We're going to get to watch all the cartoons. But like clockwork, nope. 5 or 10 to 1, time to get back out to the farm. He'd be up. <laughs> Just like that. And they would do this because it gave them a refreshment. It's like, <gasps> you know, if there was a rest, but it's a rest that produced this refreshment so that they're like, I'm ready to go. Let's get back at it now. I took my 15 minutes. Let's get back to it. He says the spirit does this. Now, the spirit doesn't come in going, oh, I'm so tired. I need a nap. But the spirit, when he comes and rests upon us, he is refreshing himself. And I'm going to just honestly say, I think one of the reasons it's a refreshment to the Spirit, now he's using a human expression here of the refreshment, because it's not like the Spirit's like, I'm parched, I'm exhausted. But he's using ideas we can relate to, to express what the Spirit does here. And what he says is, as the Spirit goes around, he doesn't run into a lot of people that cause him refreshment. Because not everybody wants to do this. Because there's a lot of us that suffer and we're like, ah. Am I suffering? it's so bad. I hate this God, I don't like suffering. you know? And if you do that, well you're in good company because you know a lot of other people do that too. But Peter's point is is if you suffer and you suffer and you can rejoice while you're suffering and you, you can be happy, you can know that the Holy Spirit actually is resting and refreshing himself upon that believer. Isn't it refreshing to you as an example, when you go to see somebody, and you're going there to encourage them because you know they're going through something difficult and they share a ton of encouragement with you about how they're looking at their circumstances, how they're handling the things that are going on. And you go, I went to encourage them and they encourage me. And this is what he's looking at, what the Spirit does. He receives this rest of refreshment upon us. It's not just that he's settled down on you. No, there's a, there's a refreshment that comes here and what the Spirit does. And that brings us, that brings us then to uh, verse 15. <coughs> verse 15, it says, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. It's got three different or four different things there, but a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Now, a lot of people look at this and say, Well, Christians can't do can't well, Christians can't murder. But the Bible doesn't say Christians can't murder. That's not possible, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that God gives us permission to do that. But the thing is, Christians, if you get really frustrated, if you get so frustrated in the world that you are just with everything going on in the world, there have been Christians that have taken matters into their own hands. And they've tried, tried to fix and make things right. And in the process of trying to make things right, they take people's lives. And Peter says here, don't suffer like that. Don't suffer as a thief. You might think you can justify thieving because do they know how how they treat that? If you go back earlier in the book, you have a people that are slaves. And he says, when you're a slave, he says, you submit to your master if they're a good master or even if they're a crooked master. And maybe they're a crooked master in the sense that, well, they don't take care of me. Do you know that at the end of the day, after after busting for that that man and everything he does I got to go out and get another job cuz he doesn't give me enough to eat that master doesn't and I'm starving at the end of the day I uh, see I set hit the table for him and he eats like a pig I, on the other hand I'm eating crumbs so I'm crooked so now you're going to go you know what when I get done cleaning up in his kitchen I'm just taking some of his food home with me so you, do, you understand how some people could justify stealing? I've known people like this. I have worked with people that they walk out and you're like, mm, you shouldn't take that. And they're like, you know how much they pay me? Not nearly what I'm worth. So they think they're entitled. And from what I understand statistically, and I don't have the, any numbers in front of me, but theft by employees is a huge problem in America. And I'm sure a lot of it comes down to the fact that they think, well, my boss is rich, I'm poor, I'm justified to this. I'm just giving myself a raise. He says, no, don't suffer as a thief. I don't care how well you think you can justify it. Don't suffer as a thief. Second of all, or as an evildoer. That's kind of a broad idea. There's a lot of things that are encompassed under the idea of being an evildoer. But then the last part of this, or as a troublesome meddler and it's a word we say troublesome but it's literally one that oversees others affairs it takes that word oversight a bishop but it's you're overseeing everybody else in other words it's really easy to start figuring out you can fix everybody else's problems you're going on trying to fix everybody else's problems and you're doing stuff and it's not wanted and that's the way this term was used in the greek it was unwanted oversight there are people that need oversight There are situations that you should oversee, but this idea that he's using here, troublesome meddler, is one that is actually trying to tell everybody else how it should be done. One of the problems sometimes is how many people tell everybody else how to do it, but what's their problem? They don't do it themselves. You're looking, you're going, you should be giving me advice? (laughs) You you know how much help you need? (laughs) You are a... This is Dwight's expression. I, I'd never heard this, this expression until I met Dwight, but everyone saw he'd refer to somebody He said, that's a cry for help. <laughs> that's a cry for help. And that's what you look at people and you say, you're a cry for help and you're running around trying to fix everybody else's problem instead of taking care of what you should be taking care of yourself. He says, don't suffer like that. But on the other hand, verse 16, but if you, we have an ellipsis here, if you suffer as a Christian, the word Christian only occurs three times in the Bible. And the word Christian is related to the word Christ. It's a diminutive, which means it's a small, it's like a, it's, you have a, you have a um, what am I trying to think? You put it on the end of words, right? And it is is like, it's a little version of a thing. Sometimes we use it that way. So this is like a person, Christ is anointed. He's the anointed one, right? Christ is the anointed one. That's what this meant. Christ meant the anointed one. Anointed by the Spirit for a purpose. And that purpose in the present time is that that he's the one that is resurrected and glorified. But we are little anointed ones. Because what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit. Just as the Spirit came on Christ, the Spirit has come to dwell in us. And we are called anointed ones. So back in the context where it said that the Spirit refreshes himself on us, well, now he comes in here He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, that is... If you're being called a Christian, it means you're living out the work of the Spirit in your life. You are seeing the fruit of the Spirit in what God's doing through you in connection with other people. You are being spiritual. You're walking by means of the Spirit. You're following the Spirit's lead. All these other things that the Apostle Paul and Peter tell us about the ministry of the Spirit in our lives, you are experiencing some of those. And he says, so if you suffer as a Christian that is, you're suffering for doing the right things that the Spirit is giving you to do, do not then be ashamed. But in the name of God, notice what it says, glorify Him. In other words, you ought to be giving God His reputation. If you're suffering as a Christian, you're saying, you know what? My Savior was anointed. He did all the right things. And He suffered. My brother's in Christ over there. They have the Holy Spirit. They've done the right things. They've suffered. And you're giving me a privilege now to suffer on behalf of the name of Christ. you remember the time back in the book of Acts where Peter and John are arrested? And they bring him before the Sanhedrin and they say, we told you guys not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. <coughs> and Peter says, well, you decide. Should we obey man or should we obey God? You, you, you tell me. What should we do? God told us to go out and preach. We're going to preach. We talked about this last week. This is why you really need to know what God wants you to do biblically, not just by your inclinations. And they knew because they had been commissioned by Christ to be out there doing that. And so they go away. And they're threatened. In fact, those guys have been beaten. Those guys have been jailed. When they're released, when they go away, they didn't go away going, oh. God, this ain't not fair. We're doing what you want us to do. And look at us We got beat. We got thrown in jail. We got threatened. You know what they do? So they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. For doing what Christ had for them. Here in 1 Peter 4, he says, if you suffer as a Christian, that as you're doing what the Spirit wants you to do, you are doing it by the work and ministry of the Spirit. If you suffer for doing those things, don't be ashamed. But give God His glory. You can look at God and give Him His reputation saying, you know what you're doing. You know how you're growing me. You know how you're glorifying yourself. You are showing your reputation by how I can go through this. He already told them back in chapter 2, suffer like Christ suffered, which means if they insult you, you don't insult back. If they cause you to physically suffer, let's say they whip you, you don't turn around and spit at them and call them names. Again, he said Christ didn't do that. When they're nailing Christ to the cross, he says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. He's not cussing them out. When they're whipping them, it says he was like a mute, a quiet, a silent you, a EWU, a sheep. Okay, let's put that, but it's a female sheep in that passage in Isaiah before his shears. He didn't complain. He says, verse 17 For it is time for judgment to begin, and our Bibles say, with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who obey the gospel of God? What? Oh. Oh, I didn't say it. like. Let me read it again. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Thank you. If I drop the knot, that totally changes the meaning. Now, in a nutshell, this verse, a lot of people don't understand this because this is the way most people read this statement. It's time for judgment to begin here. God got to judge the church and then he's going to judge the world. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is it's time for judgment to begin from the church of God. You judge these people out there in the world. How do you judge them? By how you live. You don't do it by standing on the street corner, pointing fingers at them and preaching them. I'm going to talk to Josh. Let him see if you put up a soapbox down there. And there's people coming and going from the store and going to the bank and going to the post office. I can be out there. Repent sinners! And I could be doing all of that. That is not how you judge. You judge by just living. You you, you know what you're doing? I I keep You provided a perfect example sharing about Clinton today. That actually actually is a form of judgment. If you as Christians are living properly, your lifestyle is a form of judgment. But let me ask you a question. How many of us live that lifestyle perfectly? Raise your hand. How many of you would say you're at 90%? 80? 70? You get the point? We don't do it perfectly. And that's why he says, if it begins with us, where does it end with those people that are like this? In other words, when God steps in in judgment, and his standard is going to just be absolute, it's going to be very different. You and I, the, the degree of judgment that is provided by the way we live towards the world, it's slight compared to the degree of judgment. I should say the degree of judgment that will be when God, when God is in this. verse verse 18 and if it is well let me here i had to, i just we're going to go over to chapter 3 verse 17 keep your finger here we're just going to flip back we're almost we're getting close here uh first peter 3:17 for it is better if God should desire it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong he says that's god's will you want to know what the will of God is? What we we were? I want to know the will of God in my life. I want to know the will of God in my life. Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to move? What job am I supposed to? Those are the things, right? When people want to know the will of God, do people ever come to the Scriptures and realize that one of the things that's God's will is that you suffer for doing the right things, not suffer for doing the wrong things? It is His will. It is one of the things that God desires. Believe it or not, that we suffer. That wasn't his desire for Israel, but it is one of the things he desires for the body of Christ. Go back over to chapter 4, then in verse 18. And if, if it is with difficulty, that the, the righteous are saved. In other words, it, we are, and that word difficulty can also be translated scarcely. You and I are, from one perspective, we're barely saved. We'd go, I'm not barely saved. But in the internal perspective, when you look at us and the way we live, yeah, it kind of looks like we're just barely there. But if we are barely saved, difficult that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What happens to them? Verse 19, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God, that as we suffer as God desires, let us entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right, or literally, in doing good. And they translate doing what is right. In the nasb and i think it's misleading because it is not the word righteous it's the word good and there's a difference between doing good and doing right when my mom and dad would leave my sisters and i home with a babysitter one of the things that they would usually tell us is be good take us to grandma's and they we'd be with grandma for a while be good and what did they mean by that be righteous behave but the word good is not used that way in scripture. That's the word righteous domain. The word good is talking about that which provides a sense of well-being. So in doing good, is you are suffering, but you know what you're doing? You are doing activity that is to produce a sense of well-being. Not necessarily just for you, but maybe for others. I always find it very interesting when you go through and you look at Satan's attack. And you look at the armor of God, the armor of God is so much about you being so focused on yourself that it's like, this isn't fair, shouldn't be like this, God let me down, that person didn't treat me well, and it's all this kind of stuff. And the armor of God is almost all getting you back to looking at your relationship in Christ, usually, most of the time, with other people. So we come here, you're going through suffering, Instead of just you kind of going through it, you're doing it, suffering, while you're also thinking about how to be of help, kindness, goodness to other people. Which is consistent, by the way, with the command of love, isn't it? I mean, if you're loved people, shouldn't you be doing that which is going to provide a sense of well-being? That also is part of it. Not necessarily in all settings, but in a lot of settings. So when we're talking here about this, we've seen this idea of God's glory, God's reputation. We saw it last week. We come back to it again this week, that it has to do with how we deal with suffering in the world. That's one of the things we do. But we come down here to this last part, and guess what? I've got one more part of this outline that we're going to cover. Not today, next week. I'm not going to make you sit here again for another hour while I go through that last part of the outline. (laughs) I don't think it would take us an hour, but I'm just not going to do that to you. But it's going to, have, going to have to do with how you serve while you're suffering. And you know when people are suffering, it's easy for us to sometimes focus so on ourselves that we forget about others. But we, by our lifestyle, the way we face suffering, the way we, and you're all going to face this. You, you might not think that you're facing suffering. You may not think you're going to face suffering, but you're going to face some suffering at some point in your life or many points in your life. And to different degrees. And you can face that suffering and do those things. And you can be expressing God's reputation. And people can look at that and they can see, look what they do. No, I don't. I'm just going pick to pick on my wife here at the end because she, was, she shared it. She opened up that can of worms. She, I, I do know, I get to watch I get to watch the extreme versions where she's really frustrated with some of the limitations and things but you know there's other times i have to tell her i'm encouraged by the time that she takes with other people some of you get to see it some of you may not some of you are the objects of it some of you just you don't watch it but i get to watch her doing that knowing the limitations she deals with and she probably could be one of those people that some of us would say ah she's justified just check out sit at home watch tv all day she could do something like that she couldn't do that that would drive her nuts but you get the point we get to and i'm just using her cuz i get to be a witness to this that i see the things she struggles with but i watch her in the midst of struggling continue to serve others in love to be concerned for people to take time for people and doing those things and i and i tell her that i try to encourage her with that hey god's using you don't just keep watching that keep keep remembering who you are in christ and to me that says something about god's reputation Philippians 1 6. Man, he's, he's still working on us, isn't he? We should stop. We should end with that song, but we, we don't have it up here, and I don't think I could remember enough of the words. Anyway, but he is still working on us, and he's getting us there. And some of that maturity and growth comes through going through suffering. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together today, and we're thankful for these words about suffering. None of us like to think about it, but it is something that is part of your desirous will for us, because it's part of the way that your son went. Uh, through this world the things that he endured at the end of his life and the things that you now encourage for us uh, just in living right not suffering for doing the wrong things but suffering for doing things that actually show your reputation that glorify you that express the great God that you are we're thankful for this then whatever you have in store for us in the remainder of this day in the week ahead we ask that we might do so thinking thinking consciously about are, are we being involved in, in doing good for other people, even if sometimes it, uh, it brings upon us uh, some difficulties and some challenges? And we would thank you for those opportunities in the week ahead then. Amen.